0: You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health Podcast Series from the Digital Health Council, where we aim to support healthcare innovation by disseminating knowledge of expert leaders at the Royal Society of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Marla Morkin. Welcome to another episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health Podcast, and today's is really a conversation between me and Dr. Charlotte Lee, and we're talking all things from what the future of digital therapeutics is going to look like. We're talking about the future of mental health care, the future of what is it going to be like to work as a doctor and as a healthcare professional as technology really enhances the space in the field. And Charlotte has such a varied background and you can see it as she loops it into a lot of the answers because she's worked as a clinician herself. She's been working at NHS England as a darty fellow and she's worked at the digital health accelerators and is now at big health as the uk director so really varied background we touched on a lot of subjects and i'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode so enjoy I'm here today with Dr Charlotte Lee who I'm Hello. thrilled to be with and I'm, I'm not going to try and introduce all the incredible achievements you've done but if you could give our listeners a, a brief background as to um, you know you yourself and um, and how you've kind of transitioned to really the the kick-ass woman that's solving digital health and <laughs> health problems. <laughs>
1: Gosh what a welcome thank you so much for having me um So to all our listeners, I am Charlotte Lee and I speak three languages. I speak doctor, I speak consulting and I speak digital health. You know, I actually started off life as a ballet dancer, but we can talk about that another time. Um, My problem when I was in in medicine was that I really loved solving problems that were far too big for me to be able to solve. Mm. So, you know, particularly these really meaty ones that are at the interface of medicine or social care and mental health and, and everything else. So, you know, I left medicine after I did my foundation years really to pursue this interdisciplinarian dream of mine. Um, and it's taken me on quite a journey. I spent a couple of years in management consulting with KPMG um, and that was after I did my Darzi fellowship in, in clinical leadership. So I moved from a place of like extreme kind of clinical medicine day in, day out to, oh, a bit of clinical leadership, right to industry within the space of about two years. And that was quite a shock to the system. But I really loved it. And I learned so much about myself. Um, It really humbled me. Um, And it also taught me a huge amount about, you know, how the system is structured, why it's structured like this, um, why are there certain behaviors that we see in different groups, for example, clinicians who just don't want to change or mm-hmm. commissioners who just don't want to buy mm-hmm. um, policymakers who feel very divorced from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to experience all of that in my very short time uh, at KPMG. And I realized that digital health was just an inevitability. Right. Exactly. And I wanted to ride the wave, probably much like you, Marla. Um, So I decided to make the leap, Um, I I moved into the AHSN world, I had the brilliant opportunity with uh, DigitalHealth.London um, so it's actually franchise their accelerator model. Um, how crazy is this moving from a purely consulting role to something where you're trying to franchise out a programme to four different AHSNs, setting up these accelerators, supporting about 100 different uh, digital health companies? Um, and that really got me to really understand um, still just 10%, you know, it's still the tip of the iceberg here. You know, some of the biggest challenges of... Implementing a digital health product, no matter how brilliant the founder, no matter how brilliant the product um, is in the NHS because it 's just at the moment not set up for you know this brave new world that we are kind of hurtling towards at, at great speed um, so then you know to kind of cut a long story short, I then found myself with this opportunity to join Big Health, um, which I took with a flourish because I proudly say that i have applied to big health three times the first two times i failed (laughs) really i didn't know
0: this i didn't know this i'd
1: i have known of big health almost from the get-go i heard of them when i was in medical school and i thought gosh what an amazing company to go and work for i love the brand i love what their mission is i love what they're doing i love the fact that you've got this dynamic ceo um, who was a patient and you know the the kind of lovely, gentle, the kind of conservative nature of um, Professor Colin Espy, uh, kind of married up in this product.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Tried to go for product manager roles. I have no technical expertise. Um, I think I tried to go for some sort of like sales role. No sales expertise either. So I finally got there through third time lucky. So keep on trying guys, you'll get there. and uh, i've been there for a wonderful one year uh, definitely probably still in the honeymoon phase but gosh we've done so much and i can't wait to talk to you all about it
0: this is it right it's it's just it's fascinating to see how much has been moving forward especially in the last few months but over the over the course of the year and um we were actually chatting beforehand about how um how interesting it is that you know The world we're living in right now is just completely different to what I mean if we if we had looked to where we would be now and we're recording this uh, you know in the middle of the pandemic still we're still not done with it so I mean what do you think how has things been changing your end in the digital health space?
1: Oh my gosh Um, if I told you that my business plan that I wrote just before the COVID-19 pandemic so there I am all naive thinking duh I'm building a team. I know what my roadmap is. You know, these are the milestones that I need to go for for the next year. February hits, pandemic happens, lockdown, everything gets upended. I basically had to rip up my business plan and start from scratch, um, which was absolutely fine. You know, nothing quite like a a challenge to get a girl going. Um, But the, the real key thing here was one, the, the system change. So We were talking earlier about just how much the system has kind of shifted on um, previous priorities. So if you think about what it was like before the pandemic, you know, funding was majority in acute care. It was very reactive. Hospitals had all the money. CCGs were in deficit. Um, As we were coming into the pandemic, you know, this whole brave new world of ICSs were coming into the fore with, Um, You know, a very steady state plan to try and invest more into mental health, you know, integrate local government and social care and public health and have this kind of whole systems holistic, lovely kind of approach. That's definitely accelerated quite significantly, I would say. (laughs) probably five years of work uh, and maturation in the system has happened within five months and I'm genuinely not exaggerating there.
0: Fantastic isn't it? Uh, I, I for, for our listeners could you give a tiny bit of background as to what your core products were pre-COVID right? Oh
1: yes gosh um well the good thing is is that our products are the same hooray <laughs> that's one thing that is uh, the same um regardless of where we are uh pandemic or climate change or otherwise um, so we have two products sleepio and daylight and these are digital therapeutics so what do i mean by that um, so digital ph- therapeutics put simply, is like a digital medicine. So you have software that treats a condition or a a symptom and it's packaged up in a really readily digestible digital format. Um, It could look like an app or it could look like a web-based platform, but it gives you all the benefits of a medicine plus some. So for example, it would treat your condition or your symptom, tick, but it also has none of the side effects, so that's a winner not many patients can deal with the side effects and we know there's a big problem with polypharmacy but with the fact that it's a digital product you can do fun clever things in the actual experience so you can put in behavioral nudges um, you can collect data to track progress you can be interoperable with various other digital products so that dream of creating an ecosystem within healthcare can be really accelerated by um, digital health, and specifically in terms of automating treatment, digital therapeutics. So that's a little bit around digital therapeutics, but what exactly is Sleepio? So Sleepio is a product that treats your um, poor sleep and your insomnia. Um, I'm very proud to say that we have 12 randomized controlled trials. Um, oh, to show yeah, effect,
0: that it? is ridiculous. Um, it is,
1: it's a little it's bit ridiculous.
0: Setting the pharmaceutical companies to shame
1: here, <laughs> I think we genuinely have more evidence than some pharmaceutical companies. Exactly. Um, we've tested it in over 8,000 patients in that kind of clinical trial setting. Um, and currently, Sleepio is live within the Thames Valley, it's being prescribed by GPs, it's integrated into iat services. Um, and we've had some really promising results from that study, so we showed that we could save primary care costs in a health economic study that looked at real world data. So this was cash that was um, coming out from what well, I will not call it cash, it was resources related to GP appointments and medications. And we looked at it before Sleepio and we looked at it after Sleepio and there was a demonstrable reduction in that cost curve. Um, so we're really excited about that um but we're also really excited about the fact that it's super scalable so we had this great opportunity during the pandemic to make it nationally available um which was nothing it was something that I've always dreamed of and it was always a bit of a uh I guess like a, a moonshot in our business <laughs> plan but then it was rapidly I guess like less sued and then brought <laughs> down to earth um so it's, it's been amazing. We've managed to reach over 20,000 people within a couple of months. And just to give you a sense of scale, we, that's more than the number of people that we reached in the Thames Valley over a course of 18 months, which is just fantastic and a real kind of testament to the partnership working with NHS England and Improvement and their people team. So big shout out to them. Um,
0: but kind of like You're the just first person that's ever shouted
1: out NHS England. <laughs> on a hey, you know what? I'm all about championing like good practice and like you know innovative, creative teams, even within NHS England and improvement. <laughs> <laughs> um, so two minutes. I'm going to talk a little bit about daylight. So very similar to Sleepio, it's a program um, that's got one RCT. It's very, it's still like the baby brother uh, of Sleepio but it's for worry and anxiety. So what we showed in the RCT was that um, users who had daylight had a 71% recovery rate compared to users who didn't which had 33%. Um, So that's fantastic and always happy to to share that paper around but you know in a similar vein to Sleepio you know daylight was also chosen to be nationally available and it's just really you know if you kind of go back to that story of what has how has the pandemic changed everything for you it's kind of supercharged everything Mm -hmm. and it's um you know taken my plan cut out a significant chunk in the middle and joined the two sides together um so you know I'm really excited to say that we're hiring now um we recently closed 39 million in funding um dollars not pounds I wish (laughs)
0: Still, I mean, like, yeah. it's, it's brilliant because it's showing, right, the, the movement of a whole ecosystem moving forward to trying to get people just off polypharmacy and off medications and onto a holistic treatment approach, which might include a medication for a patient if that is exactly what they need, right? But yeah. but it also gives them the opportunity to try and self-manage a lot better. I think that's brilliant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually on the self management side, you know, I think that through the research that we're doing, and it's still very early days, you know, one of the things that I love about digital therapeutics is how it really enables the trust in patients to know, you know, what's best for their health, you know, it's evidence based self care, uh, which means that for those who are motivated, who want to self care, who have their Apple products, who just want to get on and, and do it. They can, and they should be able to with the best product out there. Um, because we know that there's a huge amount of paternalism right within medicine. Mm-hmm. And there is still this expectation across healthcare systems, regardless of whether it's NHS or otherwise, that the doctor has to be in the room. Regardless of um, you know what issue you have, you need to have a clinician there to guide you through, Um, whatever treatment plan it is and I I agree to a certain extent I think you definitely need someone to oversee that but I don't know about what you think but I think you know for us to really manage this issue of increasing demand and dwindling resources i.e people are retiring you know gps are retiring um junior doctors like us are leaving on mass yeah you have a you don't really have a sustainable model here, guys, for your for, for workforce and managing that demand. So how do you think creatively um, to, to, treat, to meet that demand? And first, and more importantly, how do you get over those in, like those biases and those really like held beliefs that there has to be a clinician there? Can we be a bit more creative about it? And I think we are. Uh, we're moving towards that because if anything, the pandemic forced us to break out of that cycle. And that sort of behavior change and culture change was probably one of the most impactful things that I saw.
0: And do you know what? I, I, I completely agree because, and it's really interesting because it's given me a lot of thoughts here, what you're saying, but I wonder <laughs> what you think of, right? is that with the, with the digital therapeutics and with us able to enhance self-care a lot more, do you mm. think the role of a doctor is gonna change then?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was covered in the topple review, which was you know, released a number of years ago. I think, you know, in a way, it moved to a much more um, effective way because if, I remember going around the wards and my job was, I, I swear, it was more like being a waitress. Taking down your order. So what was the consultant's order for the day? Okay, I've got to do these bloods. I've got to check this x-ray. I've got to chase on the CT scan. And then I just need to be super organized in managing my, my beds, uh, i.e. my covers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love the end on the day uh, with very little to hand over so that, and and you've got most of the stuff out of the way so that the next day's plan can progress for the patient. Um, I just don't think that's the best way to use a doctor. You've just spent five, six years, right? Within higher education. Um, And quite often you might have done a three year degree before that, done a ton of experience and work experience within hospitals. And I do sometimes wonder whether we should be working the intellectual capability of junior doctors more than their physical capability of running around a very large hospital with mm-hmm. lots of different sites, um, chasing up on essentially very administrative jobs. So it's really about that concept of enabling clinicians to work at the top of their license yeah, and taking out some of the workload from them that could just be automated. And that could be you know, a very simple thing, like if someone comes to you with a very clear problem, like I can't sleep, instead of giving them a pill that will worsen their sleep and give them side effects, give them something that works and is instantly accessible. So that's kind of, that's the sort of story that I want to be able to tell with with digital therapeutics.
0: And it's really interesting, right? Because the technology we're using is nothing that cryptic, right? We're not like no. using blockchain and AI yes. and everything we're doing. It's simple, accessible, digital tools. And yes. I, I always say, th- I love that analogy of the, of the rest of it. You know, I always think of, you know, factory workers that they've been automated for years. I mean, mm-hmm. someone at the top realized this, you know, this isn't a sustainable model. Mm -hmm. is that automating the processes and moving factory workers to be able to you know be more of the managers
1: absolutely and you know um i remember in consulting we used to look at the nhs as a few years behind or it's probably a, a generation behind banking where back in the day for you to even deposit a check you had to walk into a physical store speak to the bank manager right you have to present them with the check they have to check it make sure that it's all legit give people a few calls and then like put the money in your bank. Now everything is digital. You know, I, I haven't walked into a bank for the last five years, yeah. I use everything, you know, on my, I, I have apps for everything and I have budgeting and I have shares and all these sorts of kind of technologies just kind of make it way more user friendly, first of all, and puts the power back into the hands of the consumer. And I just love to see that power shift happen within medicine, but I, I guess you know, the most important thing here to, to note is that the, the role of the doctor will change, but it, we're never going to get rid of that, that role. you mm-hmm. will just become more upskilled. It'll probably become more digitally um, enabled. And so education will have to change. Um, it'll probably require a lot more program management skills because you're suddenly taking a much more strategic um, role within your kind of multidisciplinary team. And I can't wait for that, that to happen because that's kind of what I really wanted to do when I left medicine. Do you
0: think you'll go back?
1: <laughs> well, you know, if um, NHS England and Improvement want to enable digital therapeutics uh, within the NHS and allow it to be prescribed en masse and reimbursed, then I will go back and be a, be a GP.
0: How, how do you practically, right, I... I love it. I love your dedication to the NHS, but how do you practically prescribe a digital therapeutic? Oh, super simple. You text a patient with a link. Um, so it's amazing. The,
1: the technology is there, right? Marla, you said it beautifully beforehand. It's not like we're using anything particularly complex. Um, it's genuinely just a text message or an email. It's the it's the interoperability that's the issue. So, um, for example, one of the the providers that we use um, has a great system. So you could set up a text message with a standard template, um, and if you've rolled out with that GP practice, they can just say that okay, you know, for this person with insomnia, this is. You code that person with insomnia, and because this service integrates into that practice, it means that when someone's prescribed a digital therapeutic, for example, with Sleepy, it gets coded back into the system. So it's all done automatically for you um, within seconds, so no paper, no like writing prescriptions, no signing of anything, and it's all within the digital ledger, if you like. Um, so yeah, super super simple. And you can do it in multiple different ways as well. You could do it where, um, I mean, your holy grail would be, you know, in that box in your EPR system where you have to type in your drug. You type in the digital therapeutics name, and it just comes down, um, and then it's like a drug. But I think we're a little bit far, uh, a little, you know early for that in terms of where we are in the system and its maturity. I think we need to get the standards right first, but I can talk about that later.
0: (laughs) No, no, it's really interesting, right? Because you just think, okay, right, we've got all of these tools. We've got the patients that want it or are already using it. Mm -hmm. And then we've just got this disparity in the system where there's like, it's not linking up, right? So, and we're not enabling the, the healthcare professionals to be able to link it all up, So, you know, I, you must you must have loads of experience where patients are screaming out and asking for it. Like, what apps is what apps are good to try? You know, and then yeah, and then you you have yeah. got clinicians that are kind of sitting there going, "Well, I don't know. I kind of heard of this app, but <laughs> no, you've hit the hit the
1: nail on the head, really, because one of the biggest enablers and probably you know the thing that's going to make digital therapeutics fly or fail is that education piece around why it's important to, to find something that has a, clin- a good clinical evidence base. Because to be very honest with you, um, you know, people don't use the, people, well, people use the same criteria to choose a health app as versus any other kind of app. So what it means is that, you know, if you're in a, in, in a situation where you need a physiotherapy, and it was in a digital space, you wouldn't particularly go to an app because it had the accreditations, uh, because it said, you know, it's, you know, registered or sponsored by the Royal College of of Physiotherapists, etc. You you literally choose it on, you know, how many stars it has, Mm -hmm. and the ratings, and how fun it looks, and the marketing claims, because that's ultimately what it is, right? It's just marketing claims. So I think there needs to be a much bigger education piece with consumers as well as clinicians around well how do you choose the right app or or the right uh, digital therapeutic um, for a patient and this requires industry to first of all mature and to be really clear that if they are claiming to manage or treat or solve any kind of condition they need to get regulated so you know one lesson here is you got to look out for a CE mark the second thing is to make sure that the claims match up to the evidence. So you gotta look past that marketing and dig into the research. It takes a little bit of time, but there are organizations that are like out there like the NHS apps library, which hopes to shortcut that process for mm-hmm. clinicians and, and patients. But I still think there's a little bit more to go.
0: And I I, I think of the, um, do you remember during the pan, pandemic when it first started? I remember, I think it was Spotify, they started, giving you educational podcasts and recommendations mm-hmm. that were almost like approved proof that they knew were giving you relevant and um, up-to-date advice about the pandemic. And, you know, mm-hmm. even things online, they would say, they would have a little thing on a news article being like, this is out of date now, or, you know, this is from two weeks ago. But on the App Store, as you say, it's all kind of muddled into one. I wonder whether or not it's um, Apple and Google's responsibility to have a subsection very clearly laid out called Validated Health Apps. I completely agree.
1: Um, I cannot talk about any conversations that we might be having with Apple or Google. But, you know, you're completely right. You know, we need to be evolving the whole sort of digital systems um that we use to be able to accommodate for this new world um, and i you know I, I guess i love the fact that it's whole systems change you know you have to change the nhs you have to change hearts and minds you have to put that education in but you've also got to change industry um, it's a really meaty problem, which I guess kind of harkening back to my first point, it's it's something that I'm super passionate about solving.
0: And and whose whose responsibility is it to solve, right? Because I mean, Charlotte, you know, like if you were um, around. <laughs> I
1: don't know.
0: Yeah, it's
1: that's a great question. Um I I think that the NHS has a responsibility of setting those standards, of saying that, you know we've spoken to clinicians, we've spoken to patients, we've spoken to people within the system, and they say that these are the things that make the most sense and matter the most for us. Um, And it should matter on behalf of the patients. So it has to be usable, it has to be safe in terms of their data, it has to work. And in terms of the clinician it's actually got to solve a problem that they have. So Mm -hmm. either it meets a treatment gap or it helps to augment current treatment plans, helps save them time. And for the system. So, you know, ultimately, you know, a lot of these products have huge potential in saving money longer term and improving outcomes. Um, I think there's a still a, still a big gap in terms of the system side and the commissioning side in thinking about strategically, how do we fund and reimburse digital therapeutics at scale, um, which is currently fundamentally sort kind of opposite to how commissioners think about commissioning. Mm. So, you know, there's there's a lot of criteria there. So I think it's not without, you know, without will within the NHS. I've spoken to a number of people within the NHS who believe the same thing. It's just that it's such a challenging problem to crack. Um, But, you know, ultimately, you know, just going back to your question, you know, I do believe it is the NHS's responsibility to set those standards and then it's for the providers in the system to take them up, disseminate them, make them really usable.
0: Exactly. And I, I, I just, I just think that we have not we have not got a system in place yet that is just streamlined and easy for patients, providers, clinicians. As you say, we just need those standards. I want to focus in now on um, on mental health specifically because um, obviously your apps, they're, they're really targeting the holistic kind of, you know, the whole cycle of mental health from the sleep to the well being and the anxiety and the worry. And we, it's, it's no, nothing new, to, you know, mental health, um, diagnosis is on the rise we've got yeah. a pandemic that has shifted people to um, be isolated and what is the future of mental health treatments going to look like Charlotte how are we going <laughs> to sort this out because are we are we in a state where we're going to have to be you know really turning to technology right here right now in order to save this system or I mean what's the what's the outlook looking like
1: I think that mental health is going to become more and more digitized and that's really kind of pithy of me to say, but what I actually mean is that um, it's not just going to be more digitized from an efficiency point of view, but it's going to start using more automation in the delivery of some of some of these treatments and there is funding there as well so you know harkening back to what it was like before covid you know we st- spoke about it before a lot of the funding was going towards acute trusts but it's almost flipped on its head now mm-hmm. so the focus on mental health and everyone's seen that public health graph where you know mental health need just goes up and up and up and continues way beyond the pandemic and we are seeing that now and we're only just kind of um seeing the the initial effects of the pandemic on mental health so we can't really project that far ahead um but we're also seeing the nhs flip the way that it thinks about mental health so it's have, it's got one of the most brilliant like programs in the world for primary care mental health called increasing access to psychological therapies uh, or IAPT for short it currently manages mainly anxiety and depression patients but if you think about that service, it already is head and shoulders beyond some of the other services that are currently out there. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that it is, um, it collects data on a weekly basis, that it uses digital programs, um, it has a stepped care model, and it does try to um, optimize the clinical workflow um, and have more chronic or um, acute patients, let's just say, in terms of their, um, uh, their issues. Um, at the top of the stepped care model and perhaps like lower level you know common issues that could be managed at the lower level like that is super novel that currently doesn't exist anywhere else in the healthcare system Um, and we know that the lead of the IAP service is super digitally savvy and really wants to bring on board more digital products so we know that it's you know that in itself is going to become um, far more prevalent in use, particularly within primary care, as it starts to spread and expand into various other services and to link up with other services uh, more effectively. So. I think the future is bright, to be honest. I think it's really exciting. I think um, that kind of that model of the step, that stepped care model where you have, you know, almost automated solutions that can deal with tens of thousands of patients at the bottom. And then you have a clinical governance structure that allows patients that have um, worse and worse um, degree of issues, get stepped up the model okay. to be treated by uh, more and more, uh, I guess, like expert clinicians. like. That would be amazing to see within the NHS, and certainly would be a blueprint for any kind of international expansion. Like I'd personally, you know, NHS England and Improvement would love to franchise out <laughs> the idea <laughs> <world> to, <laughs> to the Americas. I mean, it's 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 a great system, um, and you know, it, it produces outcomes ultimately.
0: Exactly, and uh, do you know what it, it would? also make a referral it would it would change the way that that looks as well right because you're doing it step by step we're not doing unnecessary referrals we're not doing things like referring to pain management because it has the word pain in Uh, we're actually treating the patient holistically from day one giving them the tools i think it i think that you're right i think it's super exciting um, look, I, have I've had such a lovely conversation with you today and, um, I, I kind of, Likewise. I, I kind of want to end it with, um, with just asking y- you really, I mean, what do you personally think, you know, um, that digital health is gonna, um, is gonna do for patients? I think that's the main thing, right? How's it going to look for patients in the future?
1: I think that in the future, when we become uh, slightly more frail (laughs) and we're in need of the NHS's services, it will look completely different. We'll have so much more choice around the treatments that we we get. We could have apps, we could have web-based programs, we could go to the library, we could go to our clinician, we could go to a social prescriber. And that's brilliant because each one of us has different needs that could be met by these different options it's going to be far more accessible. So the fact that currently you might have to wait for your GP appointment, everyone knows that, and it frankly is just ridiculous. Um, you know, Already, you know, waiting times for GP appointments have reduced massively because of the digitization from from the pandemic. It's going to become even more accessible in the future because you no longer need to see a clinician with digital therapeutics. You could just download it and you know that it's safe because you're educated by the system um, to find out, you know, the right information and to have almost in your head the right decision making criteria for what's best for you. and I think you know what healthcare is going to be more entertaining. Um, you know that, those that's sorts of. Promising. <laughs> it's. You know I think with a lot of people think that healthcare has to be really serious, and of course it is. You know you're dealing with issues that um, are, are often life and death. But when you're not, when you're dealing with a chronic condition, you've got to make it entertaining and engaging. You've mm-hmm. got to have people engaging with it, um, and. I guess entertaining is not the right word, engaging is probably the right word, where you are, you know, supported with, you know, behavioral science and change and um, kind of change strategies within the products and also in the system around you to ensure that you have the best possible um, outcomes from whatever program you choose, so...
0: Well, you've heard it here first, everyone. The future is optimistic. Yes. Um, Well, look, it was lovely having you and please, you must keep us up to date with um, how everything is going in the future of all of the digital therapeutics um, landscape that we're looking at here. And um, yeah, have have a lovely evening as well. Thank you. Happy to. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health podcast series. I really enjoyed talking with Charlotte today and I hope you guys enjoyed listening too. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, or if you'd like to just learn more about in general what the Royal Society of Medicine's Digital Health Council is up to, then please click the link in our bio. We've got a whole bunch of webinars and events coming up um, in the future and we would love to see you there. Bye bye for now.